Love Talk Radio. We all have inner work to do. Real life, real faith is an opportunity to connect with Cheryl and her guests as they take you on a journey to help you become your authentic self. Whether you need help goal setting, developing coping skills, or connecting with a power greater than yourself, Cheryl is here to walk with you on your path to personal transformation. Get inspired as Cheryl lets you become an active participant or just sit back and glean from the messages delivered. It's Real Life, Real Faith with Cheryl Lacey Donovan. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Real Life, Real Faith. I am your host, Cheryl Lacey Donovan, and we are so grateful that you have decided to join us here this evening. As you know, we um, always want to welcome you or invite you to connect with us on Facebook at Real Life, Real Faith with Cheryl Lacey Donovan, also on Twitter at Real Faith Mag. That's Real Faith Mag as in magazine. We're also on Instagram at Real Life, Real Faith as well. And um, tonight's topic is one that I believe should be near and dear to everyone's heart. It has to do with our educational system. And we're going to be speaking with Dr. Lydia Kearney Carlos and asking the question, is our education system failing? And, you know, I, I for one, am also an educator. I teach at the post-secondary level. And so I get an opportunity to see many of the children once they have already passed through um, grades pre-K through 12, so they've already been through elementary and grammar school, middle school, or junior high school. They still call it in some places. They've also already been through um, high school as well. And, you know, I see a lot of different things, a lot of different things. You know, first of all, I can remember when I was going to school, we had a lot of experiential learning. I remember going to um, going to the uh, operas and the symphonies, going to plays and musicals and things like that, and you know, just different places where you could experience different types of people, where you could be exposed to different cultures other than your own. We had a thing here in Houston called the People's Place, and at the People's Place, you would go there and learn about India and Africa and China and Japan. You know, things that were different, things that you were not used to. And by doing so, it gave you a, a broader knowledge base. It, it helped you to um, foster creativity and expand your imagination and go outside your own borders and cause you to really, you know, think about things in a more global perspective. And I think these days, unfortunately, we, you know, no longer have that as a luxury, you know, with, with cut cutbacks as far as federal funding is concerned, certain states refuse to accept certain types of funding, they're taking out music and arts and, and crafts and appreciation from music and a lot of the different things that, especially for African-American children, can sometimes be a detriment because those are some of the things where we tend to excel in, you know, we excel in, in music and in arts and being creative and things like that, and I, I, I see that a lot, um, the fact that it's no longer there when I deal with some of the students at the post-secondary level because, you know, I, I hate to say it like this, but it's, it's reality. Many times they cannot think their way out of a paper bag. You know, when we look at case studies and we talk about critical thinking and what would you in this, what would you do in this situation and understanding how 
to communicate with people that are from other cultures and cultural diversity and, you know, things like that, it, it, it's hard sometimes to get them to that level of engagement. And, you know, as, as a country, we really need to look at that because all of the other countries, man, I, I, I would even be willing to say even some of the third world countries are excelling in those areas. I think the more that they, the smarter they're becoming, the dumber in many, many instances we are becoming here in the United States. Now, I think that the Internet may to some degree sort of level the playing field, but unless um, all of the communities have access to Wi-Fi and the Internet and computers, you know, even that can uh, create a digital divide amongst various uh, ethnicities here in us. And then you have this whole idea of standardization, as if you can standardize someone's learning. You know, that is next to impossible. Everybody learns differently. You know, some people are kinesthetic in their learning abilities. Some people are auditory. Some people are visual. You know, and, and to say that, you know, you can just make that happen across the board and everybody needs to learn the same is just um, unreal to me. I don't see how anybody can come to that conclusion. I don't care how learned you may think you are. To say that you can really standardize somebody's um, education is next to impossible. And then we end up teaching the test or teaching to the test because um, that's the only way that we're going to come get to any of the outcomes that we're looking for. And, again, I believe that that is a detriment to our children. Because, you know, then you start basing teachers' salaries on whether or not they're able to pass these standardized tests. And then we all know that that can, in turn, cause people to do certain things that they might not otherwise do because they think their jobs are in jeopardy. Um, So it's just a plethora of things that I think are um, happening in our educational system right now. And, you know, I really don't believe that they are enhancing or helping our children, I think that in many instances it may actually be hindering our children and um, providing drawbacks for them. You know, and I, I, you know, I remember seeing some things about uh, these different standardized tests, and and even in the language, in the verbiage that it, that they use, they can be biased. You know, whereas in, in, in our culture we may call uh, something a divan or a couch. In another culture, they may use the term sofa. Well, if you've never been exposed to that, then to ask a question related to that on uh, on a test can somewhat be biased. Or, or when you see the term a cup and a saucer, you know, some, some children may just view that saucer as a little plate or a smaller plate. And when they hear the term saucer, what they've seen on TV that was a saucer is a flying saucer, is in a UFO. So, I mean, it's just, it's just a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. And hopefully we'll be able to speak with Dr. Uh, Lydia later on this this evening. I believe she is on the line now. So what we're going to do, we're going to take a really quick uh, break, and then we'll come back, and the next voice that you'll hear us speaking to will be none other than that of Dr. Lydia Kearney-Carlis. We'll be back in just a moment on Real Life, Real Faces with Cheryl Lacey Donovan. This is the news. This morning, we are saluting the 2.2 million women who have joined in the war effort. They now make up 37% of the workforce, changing their role forever. The prestigious Harvard Medical School is breaking ground today, opening its doors to new female applicants. 
Today, little girls all over the world look to the sky, where the first woman is now in space. Military stereotypes are challenged today with the trailblazing promotion of a U.S. female officer to four-star general. It was just announced that the vast majority of last year's doctorate degrees were earned by women. We've come so far, but our news is changing for the worse. More women die from heart disease and stroke than men, even though it can be prevented. Make a change at GoRedForWomen.org today. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the American Heart Association's Go Red for Women. You don't usually get a stock tip from a 16-year-old, but I'm here to tell you about a different kind of stock. It's called Better Futures, a stock for social change that's not about making money. Instead, you invest to help students like me go to college. This is beyond a simple donation. It's the opportunity for America to invest in its kids and take an active stake in the future of the country. The return on your investment isn't money. What you get back is knowing you protected our potential. So one day, that potential can grow up to become surgeons and architects, executives and engineers, people who can change the future just by being a part of it. My name is Alicia, and I'm your dividend. Invest in better futures with UNCF. Visit uncf.org slash invest. A mind is a terrible thing to waste, but a wonderful thing to invest in. A public service announcement brought to you by UNCF and the Ad Council. And what a wonderful segue into um, this segment where we'll be talking about whether or not our education system is failing. Dr. Lydia Kearney College is an educator, uh, educational researcher and photographer that's based in Washington, D.C., and she has dedicated her education career to students most at risk when schools fail them children of low-prestige minority backgrounds, children with limited school language, and children with special education needs. Dr. Lydia, thank you so much for joining us here tonight on Real Life, Real Faith. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. I don't know if you had an opportunity to listen to um, the initial, uh, the beginning of the broadcast, but, you know, I was just kind of talking about some of the disparities and some of the issues that we are um, dealing with in our educational system, and I was wondering if perhaps you could could speak to that as far as what the educational system looks like now and whether or not you believe it is doing all that it can for our children. Sure. Um, I can try my best. Um, It's really disheartening to look at the data now for public school systems, and I want to focus on public school systems because Mm -hmm. private school systems um, are working very differently and have, you know, different standards. But our public school systems are not really doing well by any kids, white, black, Hispanic, poor, wealthy, or middle class, rather, Um, overall, if you look at the stats, only, you know, a little over 50% of white students are, you know, passing their state exams, as we would expect, or if you look at the national assessments that are given um, annually, the NAEP, the, the no students are doing too well. But what is especially troubling is that black and brown students 
African-American and Latino students are by far doing the worst. I um, mean, you can also include American, you know, Native Americans in that mix that our black and brown students are really getting the shortest end of the stick in public education. Mm-hmm. Um, and that has been happening for for many years, but we see um, we see it just intensifying now. And as as you said earlier, budget cuts continue, and programs that are meant to kind of level the playing field continue to diminish and dwindle. Um, what is somewhat of a bright light and and has hope is the charter school movement. Those are free public schools that are just um, privately run, um, and they're mm-hmm. some of them are. Um, they're, you know, nonprofits mostly. Some of them are run by for-profit, um, for-profit companies. Those are not shown to, to be as successful. Um, but the charter schools mm. give some hope because they actually have the opportunity for innovation. And so some of the things that you were talking about, like music being taken out of schools and field trips and different opportunities to experience other cultures. All of those things are possible in um, these smaller charter school systems that allow for the public dollars to be used in innovative ways for kids. So that's an exciting potential um, support for, for new ideas that can hopefully be scaled and studied so that we understand why some of those things that are working are working um, and can, you know, get them into the hands of more educators. Mm-hmm. So you started out by talking about the um, the standardized tests and things like that. What do you think about those standardized tests, and do you find in your research that they, they are biased, as we've heard so often before? So... Some assessments can be biased, and I mean, I so I'll say that I love data and I love assessments. Assessments that are valid and reliable can be valid and reliable for different purposes. So mm-hmm. the SAT or the ACT are they are a good indicator of whether or not students will do well in college. Um, but they're not the appropriate assessment for, say, a kindergarten teacher to give his or her student. Um, I think the issue is that schools are starting late in attempting to catch children up um, who have not gotten the supports that they need early on. So there is this divide in language, which is what you were in vocabulary, which is what you were um, referring to earlier with, you know, the difference between a saucer and a plate or a sofa and a couch. Um, students who are, who are getting high-quality early learning experiences are getting those, that diverse, robust language early on so that they are bridging that gap early. They're learning to love books and to think about text in a, in a deep way early on so that when they get to middle school, high school, and they have some of these high-stakes 
assessment, they are prepared. Um, the the difference between a, a, a most poor student and many wealthy students is not their brain capacity at birth. It's the experiences that they have. So when you talk about a school taking you to the opera or a school taking mm-hmm. you to the people's place, a wealthy parent probably already took their child there before you went. So, or mm-hmm. a parent, even mm-hmm. a middle-class parent who has more time, more access right. to, um, to funds to do that. Um, they have paid time off. Many of, in many cases, um, some of my parents, who were um, just struggling to make ends meet, it was difficult for them to even get off to come to a parent-teacher conference. because Not because mm-hmm. they um, didn't want to come, but if you are already working at a job that pays you very little and then you do not get paid when you leave work to go and do something, it makes it very hard for you to, to make those kinds of choices. So um, mm-hmm. I think that the access and opportunity that you can have from quality early learning experiences can help to start bridging some of the gaps that you um, that you were addressing. And then charter schools again, and hopefully public um, traditional public schools will continue to improve. And I mean, I'm in Washington D.C. We've seen that. This competition has been healthy for both charter schools and traditional public schools, and that both need to continue improving and continue innovating to best serve the needs of the students in the city. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, you said something else that was very key, and I remember this also very vividly. My mother actually was an administrator in the school systems, so mm-hmm. she did um, she she did make sure that my sister and I had exposure to different things very early on, even before the school would. I, we mm-hmm. would do the same, you know, do those things as well. And it was it was um, sort of a when I tell this story, people kind of look at us crazy, but, it, I mean, it's, it's actually true. I remember my mother very vividly saying to us, you don't need to go in there and clean that up. What I need you to do is go in there and get in the books. You might be able to hire somebody to clean your house one day, but I need you to get I an education. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And Aww. so that was, you know, people really look at us strange, but, you know, and as a result of that, both of us have um, both of us have been educators, and we also are now entrepreneurs because that was a mm-hmm. big theme to her that our education was extremely important. And you know, with my own children, I, I the same thing. I, I instilled that in them as well. And so, I guess one of the things that I'm trying to get to now is the importance of parents being involved mm-hmm. in the educational process. So I want to approach that from two sides. I think, I mean, we know from research and just from common sense that it is very important that parents be involved in their children's education. Um, it does not mean that parent. One of my one of my colleagues always says parents are not their child's first teachers in the sense of school teachers because parents weren't necessarily educated to become a school teacher, but they are their children's first teachers um, in the sense of 
the language that they're sharing, the vocabulary, even the the respect for school. So are you putting mm-hmm. your child to bed at a time that's going to allow them to be fully awake and fully engaged at school? Are you um, ensuring that to the best of your ability, you know, financial ability, that you're giving them healthy food to eat? Um, are you taking them to those doctor's appointments and things that all of those um, activities and necessities really impact whether or not your child is going to be as successful in school. Are you partnering mm-hmm. with the teacher to, uh, to, to talk about your child, to support your child's learning at home, with just conversations. Um, so all of that is really important on the one hand. On the other hand, I would always tell teachers who worked with me um, and teachers who I then later supported as, uh, have later supported as a coach or um, in other capacities, if you take this check every two weeks for teaching, I cannot abide by hearing, well, parents aren't doing their jobs, so this is hopeless. If you believe it's hopeless, Mm -hmm. you should not be collecting that check. You need to quit and go find something else to do. So, yes, parents should be involved. If parents are not involved or what is more likely they are not involved in the way that we would like them to be involved. So if they are not mm-hmm. involved in the way that we would like them to be involved, we still have six and a half hours a day to eight hours a day to sometimes 10 hours a day for those children who are in, you know, before school and after school care and then during the school day. What can you do with those six to 10 hours a day to help that child learn? It is not impossible. So let's get to work. And it's not, not. You're right about that. And and so here's something else that I wanted to talk about. I have a couple of things. I was a school nurse in um, in uh, elementary school for a couple of years. And mm-hmm. one, I want to talk about um, the other side, the other things that teachers now are being um, asked to do because we both know that they yes. end up being. Yes. Social workers and um, Mm -hmm. um, mommies and daddies and, you know, you have kids that are coming in that that don't eat adequately at home, don't sleep adequately at home. Many of them are latchkey kids and or um, they may be the oldest sibling and have to take care of two or three other kids Mm -hmm. as well. So that has a bearing on the system. And, you know, let's face it, teachers will never probably be paid enough for everything that they need to do. That's one aspect of it that I wanted, wanted you to address. And the second thing is I I, um, I had many a parent <laughs> and many a teacher upset with me because I would not allow them to put a kid on Ritalin because they wanted mm-hmm. to say every kid that didn't want to sit in their seat, a first grader, mind you, needed to be on Ritalin. They had ADHD. And I'm mm-hmm. like, it's a first grader. It's a kid. Take them outside. Let them run around and come back in and sit down and then try to teach them. You know? <laughs> so, I don't know. Talk, let's talk about that a minute. Okay. So, let's start with the, the easier subject, which is um, teachers having so much on their plate um, 
that they need to support in order to get to the instruction. Um, So we know that children are coming to school with challenges. We know that, um, and you named some of them, and I talked about some of them before, so um, insufficient sleep or lack of nutrition, health care, all of those areas, and then the, the psychological challenges sometimes from have being in environments that are less than safe or less than um, emotionally healthy for them. And so teachers mm-hmm. have the reality of, you know, working with children every day who are coming to school, especially in urban um, schools that have, you know, higher concentration, higher concentrations of children um, from low economic backgrounds. Um, Then you Mm -hmm. also have the reality that the school system likely failed most of those parents. So the parents have often experienced a less than stellar educational uh, career. They did not get the supports that they needed, so there is sometimes a lack of trust between the system and the family. But I have seen in my own classroom teaching when I taught taught seven years um, formally and then, you know, taught with in my mom's school growing up, I have seen the power of personal relationships. So mm-hmm. it is critical, and I mean, this is something else that you can find in the research, that it's critical that parent, the teachers and caregivers form relationships and that teachers what it's teachers responsibility to do that work to build that trust for individuals so whether or not you trust the system we need to have a trusting relationship in this classroom so here's what I'm going to do as a teacher to build this trust now we have to go back to the teacher's training and professional development to be able to do that well. You know, so you can't have, you can't build trust if you are coming from a place of disdain or a place of judgment Mm. for the parent. You Mm. cannot build trust if, you know, if instead of being concerned about, let's say this child is coming to school with, um, you know, dirty clothes on or something. Instead of being mm-hmm. concerned about the child and the family, you're looking at the mom and saying, well, that sure is a nice bag she's wearing. You know, that's not mm-hmm. your business. Like, let's focus on what it is that right, we're here right. to focus on, and, and, it's, and it's the child. So, but all of that is, um, those biases are ingrained in so many of us over time, and so there needs to be active, explicit support for teachers to uncover those biases, to actually call them out, and to actively fight against them on a day-to-day level in the classroom. So that's instruction that needs to happen for teachers. It's not happening in teacher preparation programs. It's often not happening in teacher training, like on-the-job training because it's uncomfortable to talk mm-hmm. about racism and equity and, you know, bias. So it's easier to just try to talk about 
the you know the data from the last assessment. You're talking about all of the things that go around whether or not children are prepared or you know ready mm-hmm. to learn, and so some of that needs to be taught in teacher preparation programs for so universities. <coughs> Excuse me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, one of one of the things that um, I tell people also when I when I hear them give those type of responses, you know, you don't know where that purse came from. Somebody might have given it to them as a gift. They might they might have been a, a part of some of these programs that they have at Christmas time and you know during different times of the year where you can go. Somebody may donate and so you ended up with a nice purse. So don't it, it, it don't assume. Don't just automatically believe that, okay, well, they must have something going on. They're able to, you know, have this nice purse or this nice, you know, hairstyle or or nail. You don't know where that came from. And like you said, it's none of your business, so stop worrying about it. (laughs) (laughs) But I will say that. Yes. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, you know, go ahead. I'm I'm stuck. Oh, I was just going to say I will say that until those teacher preparation programs and Schools that are training their teachers are doing a better job of supporting teachers in family engagement strategies that are effective and that are um, culturally sensitive and um, and just respectful. Then that mm-hmm. is going to continue to be a problem. And then another area that I think is really important is. You were talking about the fact that all of these students come and they're so different, but we want one way of teaching. That has long Mm -hmm. been one of my areas of concern and and probably just something that I really am passionate about consistently is I believe that teacher preparation, so colleges and universities really need to look at providing dual certification as a as a minimum, every teacher going into schools. And the dual certification would be in whatever content area you want to teach in special education because children are individualized. And it's not Mm -hmm. that every single child needs an individualized plan that is mandated by the federal government, but every teacher needs to understand how to meet the needs of diverse children because those are the children yeah. that are in front of her or him. So that so that special yeah. education training just gives you so much more ability to support diverse learners. That is very, very true. Dr. Lydia, this time went by so quick, I cannot even believe it. <laughs> so we're going to have to have you to come back on the broadcast and talk some more because education is one of my, my big things as well because I like the um, – like the commercial said earlier that we ran, a mind is a terrible thing, thing to waste, but yes. a great thing to invest in. So before we go, I want you to get, um, give the listeners information about how they can find out more about you and what you are doing. And definitely we're going to get with you to have you back on the broadcast again. Thank you so much. I'd love to come back. Listeners, you can find me at www.com. E-Y-E-M-A-G-I-N-E-D.com, I imagine ed.com. Thank you. 
Thank you so much again. Everybody, that is Dr. Lydia Kearney Collins, and she is an educational researcher. And tonight we've been talking about whether or not our education system is failing our children. And uh, we're going to have her back again because this is something that needs to be an ongoing conversation, an ongoing narrative. Um, Next time when she comes back, I think we need to talk about how we can, what we can do individually to try to help uh, create some changes in the education system. Um, We want to again invite you to connect with us on Facebook at Real Life Real Faith with Cheryl Lacey Donovan, on Twitter at Real Faith Mag, and on Instagram at Real Life Real Faith. And we want to remind you that on November 5th here in Houston, Texas at the Sterling Banquet Hall, we're going to be having the first Real Life Real Faith Changing the Narrative Awards where we are recognizing people who are narrative changers, people that are out there changing people's lives, transforming their lives one person at a time. Visit awards.realliferealfaithmedia.com. Again, awards.realliferealfaithmedia.com. Find out what's happening. Find out how you can get tickets or how you can even um, advertise or be a sponsor of the event November the 5th here in Houston, Texas at 7 p.m. And as always, we want to remind you that God can do exceedingly and abundantly more than you could ever ask or think according to the power that worketh in you. Be blessed.